Hello. Just, should we try that again? It's really simple. I say hello and you say... Hello. Yeah, great. Okay. Isn't it nice to be back home? I walked in late. I was with someone and uh, it was so beautiful in here. Katie and Johnny and the team have decorated it so well. Um, and I just want to remind you, you're welcome to stay tonight. We're having a little party to end student term, but it's a party for everyone, basically. So... Um, do stick around. Um, I just opened the fridge. There's a lot of beer in there. So um, you better stick around, otherwise Owen will drink it. And it's just like, oh, no. Um, we are in the fifth act in our um, unfolding drama of Scripture series. Uh, we've looked at creation. We've looked at fall. We've looked at Israel. We looked last week at Jesus. And tonight we're looking at the church and how through the church the kingdom is to spread to the world. And chances are, if you've been in church for any length of time, some of you have grown up in the church, you'll have heard lots of sermons about the church and what it is to be church. And uh, I'm going to add to your collection tonight. But I hope that what I'll show you is that uh, there is both a profound continuity with everything we've seen so far in this story as we've journeyed through the Old Testament particularly, but at the same time, this radical, beautiful new thing that God does post-resurrection through Jesus Christ. So grab your Bibles. We're going to dart around them tonight. So you uh, need to turn to Matthew chapter 10 as we begin. If you don't have a Bible, put your hand up and the stewards will come and get you one. Um, we're encouraging you to bring your Bibles to church and scribble in them and write in them. And hands up, there we go. Um, did I spot a Christmas jumper earlier? Just while we get some Bibles. Giles, uh, mate, well done, respect. Um, uh, let's all wear them next week. Okay, um, Matthew chapter 10, uh, and it says this. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and illness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. Da, 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 da. Skip to verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Pause. That's not because he didn't intend to go to those places and to those people. It's just that he didn't start there. He begins with the lost sheep of Israel. He says, go to them first. Um, As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal those who are ill, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons freely you have received freely give. Now notice, uh, what does he tell them to do? To go, missio, to be sent. Uh, and he tells them to, to proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now if you were here last week, you should remember that that's what Jesus began his ministry by saying. In other words, our message is his message. Their message was his message. They're saying it and declaring it before he's even died on a cross and been raised to new life. They get, they go in his name, in the power of the Spirit, to proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. God's new thing is happening. Are you in? Are you in? And notice then verse 8 what he says, Heal those who are ill, not in their own strength, but in the power of the Spirit. Raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. You and I are tasked with doing exactly the same things that Jesus did, declaring the same things that Jesus did on behalf of him. That's what it is to be the church. Uh, The other thing to notice, of course, is that there's something happening here by way of continuity with the Old Testament. 
Uh, there were 12 tribes of Israel, and Jesus appoints 12 new people to be around him, the apostles. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm doing a new thing. There's a new Israel now. Uh, the true Israel, uh, Jesus Christ, creates a new Israel community around him. He appoints 12 people. So the first century Jews listening in on this would have known exactly what he's saying. The, the fulfillment of the promises in Abraham are now being outworked in through Jesus by way of this new creation community that uh, he has appointed to outwork his redemption plan. And that's the community that you and I are part of. It's called the church. We've seen, haven't we, hopefully you remember this, that from the very beginning, God's intention is that he would um, create us in his image and that we would be tasked with co-ruling over all creation for him and with him. That doesn't change with Jesus. God's still calling out a people to co-rule with him, to steward creation for him, to work with him, to see his creation plans extend into the whole world until the whole world is filled with shalom. The difference is that it's finally made possible in and through Jesus Christ. He's done it, and now we enact it. He's achieved the victory on the cross. Now we outwork it in faith, confident that he who began a good work in us will complete it, right? Now, the Greek word often used, most often used in the New Testament, you'll know this, many of you, for the word church, is this actually the word ecclesia in the Greek. Uh, And that comes... um, out of two words, we'll look at those in a minute. Just have a quick look to Matthew 16, turn over, turn right. Matthew 16, here it is on the screen. Uh, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, at this point in the story, I imagine all the other disciples are stood around going, "Uh, Sorry, time out, Jesus, seriously? You're going to build your church on Peter? Like, he's the flaky one. He's the joker. He's the unreliable one. He's the one who goes on to deny Jesus three times. Yes, you, Peter. Why? Because he sees who Jesus is. And he puts his faith in him. He makes this declaration. He's the first one to do it. I see who you are. I get now what this story is. I get where it's come from. I get where it's going. I get who you are, Jesus, in it. And I'm beginning to understand what it is I'm caught up in. I'm in. And so Jesus says, yeah, great, I'll work with you. It's good news for us, isn't it? Simon Peter's, all of us, in a sense. And then notice the word church. That's the first time the word ecclesia appears in the New Testament. And it comes from two words in the Greek, kalio, which means to call. And then this word ek, which is a preposition, I'm told, and it means out of. The ecclesia, in other words, is the called out ones. The church are those who've been called out. Just as in and through Abraham, God had called some to be a particular kind of people, Jesus is now doing the same. The ecclesia, this new 
community around Jesus is called to pick up where Israel has left off, to carry the story forward to completion. And the way the kingdom of God was to spread was through this community of people. Why? Because that's how it's always happened, in and through people. That fledgling little community of scared disciples who hide in the upper room, praying, waiting, doing as they're told, but thinking, what have we got ourselves into? You know, they've seen their, their Jesus hang on a cross, they're left wondering what the heck, and then before they've really got their heads around it, he's risen to new life, and then he appears to them, and he cooks breakfast for them on the beach, and, and then he ascends into glory, and they're like, whoa, and he's given them this instruction, and he, they're terrified, they're thinking, what have we got ourselves into? It's that group of people that God says, now I'm tasking you with continuing what Jesus started. These people who knew that God was calling people out of spiritual slavery into spiritual freedom. People who were being called out of sin and death into life, into wholeness. That new called out community, the church, are tasked with spreading the kingdom of God. Paul emerges as the lead apostle, if you like, one of the theologians who uh, kind of begins to get his head around what on earth it is that Jesus has done, what it means to be caught up in this new creation project. And he puts it uh, kind of out there in the New Testament. He begins to help us make sense of it. Here's a summary of what I think he says. They understood, I think, Paul understood, they began to understand that the church, the ecclesia, is to be this community of people brought together and brought to life by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They were bound to each other and Jesus through sacrificial love in a new covenant with God made through the death and resurrection of Christ. And they were a recommissioned humanity tasked with being God's divine image bearers in the world, extending his kingdom until the whole world is made new. That's what the church became, this community tasked with that shaped and formed by the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Or as we say around here, a people who've realised they're joining with God in the renewal of all things. So a theologian, a guy called Mark Strom, uh, Australian, I spent time with him in New Zealand, he says this, For Paul, his understanding of the gathering, that's the word ecclesia there, drew deeply from his heritage in the Jewish scriptures. Notice the continuity with uh, Acts 1, 2, 3 and 4. He understood the new people of God as being drawn from all nations to fulfill the ancient promises made to Abraham. Paul framed these broad hopes for the people of God within a pattern of creation and recreation. For Paul, the ecclesia, the church, was the model of the new humanity who wait to inherit a new creation. They are the people of the second Adam, Jesus, the man from heaven who gives the spirit. Now, there's so much I'd like to say, but I'm going to restrict myself to just four things, not as long as you might think, hopefully. So keep your Bibles open, but turn right again, move to Luke 22. I want us to notice just four things about who we are as the church and what it means for us. Uh, Hopefully it will make sense of some of what we've done so far, and it will tee us up for next week as we wrap the story up. So Luke chapter 22 Verse 20, we're just going to home in on this one. This is the narrative of the Last Supper, from which we get our liturgy for communion. And uh, Jesus says here, oh, it says of Jesus, uh, this account that Luke gives us. In the same way, after supper, Jesus takes the cup, saying, this cup, the wine, this is the new covenant in my blood, 
which is poured out for you. Notice the language. Just as Israel was a covenant community, the ecclesia, the new church, the new Israel around Jesus is a covenant community. In his death on the cross, Jesus establishes a new covenant with humanity. The signs of that to us are a meal made holy. Bread that we take and break. Wine that we receive and pour out. As signs to us to remember how Jesus enacted that covenant with us. How do we know that he's done what it takes for us to be liberated? He died on a cross. The whole and perfect one becomes sinful and broken. He is broken apart on the cross for us. His blood literally pours out of him so that freedom and shalom can flow once again into the world. The sinless saviour becomes the sinful one. The perfect one gets broken apart so that we can be put back together. These are the signs to us, the promise, the guarantee. It's happened, it's done. And we access it through faith. Every time we come to the meal, we're saying thank you. We're saying thank you for that covenant commitment, Jesus. So Stanley Grenz, another theologian, he puts it like this. He says, the church is the covenant people of God and the sign of the eschatological kingdom. The word eschatological is literally, it means about the end times, how the story ends. We're, we're a sign in the world today of what it will be like when he comes in glory to finish what he started. And so in response to this incredible commitment by Jesus to us, we're invited to covenant ourselves both to God and to one another as the church. The church is literally formed by people, you and I, who choose to covenant ourselves to God and one another in faith, who centre ourselves now around Jesus, the person, the man, the risen Lord. And we say yes to him and we say yes to journeying together as the body of Christ, to being together on behalf of him in the world. And just like Jesus promises to be with us to the very end of the age, Matthew 28, our covenant commitment to Jesus is to be with him to the very end of the age, to lay down our lives and to say, everything I have, everything I am, every day of every life, of every week, of every month, my whole life, I'm going to give it to you, Jesus, in service. I want to be standing there when you come in glory And be able to be counted as one who is faithful and obedient to the very end. I'm not going to flake out on you. How could I do that when you went the distance for me? That's the covenant commitment that we make. And one of the ways we give expression to that is that we literally gather back together. We, The called out ones come out and gather together. We make a commitment to doing that on a Sunday, morning or evening. uh, To come back together and say, this is who we are. This is our story. We come to worship God, to give expression to our faith, to allow the Spirit to pour himself out again upon us. We'll do that later. So that we go back into the world with a fresh sense of who it is that we're serving, why it is that we're doing it, who it is we're doing it with. And how together we're giving expression in the present to the way life is meant to be. So that people get a glimpse that we literally, as a church, become a sign to the world of what God intended for his humanity all along. And what it will look like when it's all finished. People are meant to look at you and me and how we do life together and go, Ah, I get it. We're meant to be a sign that points people to something bigger and better. And we're called to invite people into that community. There's an expectation from Jesus that that as we have freely received, 
we will now freely give to others. And we do that principally in two ways. We invite people in. We say, come and join in. Come and be part of the thing that God is doing. Here's my story. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And your name, yes, your name is written in the book. There's a place for you in our church. Because there's a place for everyone in the church. He came for all and everyone. But you and I have to go and invite. Don't wait for someone else to do it. Don't wait for the people that you might be the only Christian in in their lives to suddenly decide off their own back they're going to come along. They're going to seek out God. That's not how it works. Occasionally that happens. But my guess is most of you are in the church either because your parents invited you in or someone else invited you in. And so can I reiterate, like we've printed some beautiful invitations for you to take away tonight and give to your friends and say, come to one of the carol services that my church is doing. They do them really well. Like it's classic. It's done well. We do it well. We made a video. I think you've seen it, haven't you? You know, I mean, cutting edge technology, like no expense spared. I mean, like seriously, I was so cold by the end. You know that last line? That's an Owen line, it's not mine. And he had the specific kind of way he wanted me to deliver it. Man, I don't know how many takes we took. 50, 60, I'm like, oh, come on, I just want to go home. But we've done that because actually we want people to hear something of the message of Christmas. We want you to be able to retweet that and share that on Facebook and say, look, come. We've got an answer to that question that you are asking. And I know they're asking, we've done our research, that's what people are thinking. I want you to invite your friends. If you're still in Worcester, come. Seriously, just come. it's the easiest invite. Come sing some carols, drink some old wine, have a mince pie, boom. Easy, easy. Uh, we also do that, though, by serving. By living out what Jesus has done for us. So part of what happens when we come to the table is that we receive for ourselves the broken bread and the wine poured out. But, but it's so that actually we can say, I'm going to now pour myself out. I'm going to break myself open in service to the world on behalf of the risen Jesus Christ. Because it's in service that people taste and see something of what God has done. And so we have to be just as committed to one another when we're scattered as it is when we're gathered together. It's great to come together and hang out and do all of this stuff, but like it's as important that you're connecting with one another beyond the Sunday gathering, that you're in a small group, that you're praying with one another, that you're keeping tabs on each other, you're noticing if someone's not okay, you're doing something about it, you're journeying. There's too many of you for Owen and I to do it. And we're in it together, right? What, what's going to encourage you to get up tomorrow morning and go into the world on behalf of the kingdom. Well, one of the things will be knowing that there's this community, the Ecclesia, who's cheering you on, that are praying for you, that are texting you, WhatsApping you, connecting with you. How's it going? How did the interview go? How did that difficult thing go? How did, how did your essay go? Do you get it done? Whatever it is, we're in it together, right? So that's the first snapshot. The second one, uh, you need to turn to Acts for. So turn right again. And to Acts chapter 1, Luke, who wrote the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. And I want you just to notice two things here. First, uh, literally, um, verse 1. Bam. Uh, I don't know why that stopped working, Louise. There we go. Uh, In my former book, he says, Theophilus, that's who he's writing to, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Notice that word began. So Luke, 
records what Jesus did, and then Acts records what the people of Jesus did after Jesus. Jesus began something and then hands on to the ecclesia. Acts is about what Jesus went on to do through this new covenant community. Uh, turn over to Acts 2. This amazing chapter in the Bible. Joe's already referenced it brilliantly this evening for us. It describes this hugely significant moment in the unfolding story that we're looking at. Something beautiful happens as a result of Pentecost. And we see this description of the early church that is compelling, right? I mean, it's messy and dysfunctional, just like every church. But they got something. Why? Because they realized something of what they were part of. Christians rightly celebrate Pentecost every year. We remember the day when God gave the Holy Spirit to the church. And as the charismatics, we're in for that, right? We're up for that. But the danger is that we miss some of the beautiful things, the powerful things that are going on, particularly in light of the Old Testament stuff we've been looking at. So I just want to suggest to you that as well as simply being this moment when the church is brought alive by the Spirit in a particular way, actually there are three other things happening here. First, Pentecost is a reversal of Babel. Remember Genesis 11, where we read about uh, the people of God post-Noah who've been sent on again, back on track in theory, is the, the mission of God. They're going to go and live in the land. They're going to extend their lives. They're going to live expansively until the world is filled with the glory of God. But they don't. They find this place called Babel. They settle. They build a tower. And it's this kind of decision to try to be independent of God. The same problem again. And so God steps in and he scatters them and he confuses their language so they can't communicate. And ever since then, there's been division in the world. There's been conflict between people, groups and cultures, language, tribes, tongues, nations. And yet when the Spirit falls at Pentecost, suddenly the early church, the ecclesia, the Simon Peters, you and I, they go out praising God in languages they've never had before. It's a tongue. It's the gift of tongues. And they, all the people around them from all the other nations that are in the streets start to hear God being praised in their language. Suddenly it's not that they can't understand it's one another. It's suddenly that they're now understanding afresh in a new way. They're being united through this gift of tongues to come together as one family because in Jesus Christ there's only one family. Every tongue, every tribe. Every nation is welcome at the feet of Jesus Christ. There's this beautiful moment where Babel is reversed. And that's one of the reasons why Paul says he eagerly desired the gift of tongues. Because you get to praise God in a way that's good for you. It helps you, but actually it helps other people. I didn't realize this, but I have, uh, one, of the gifts, one of the tongues that God gave me was Maori. And then I went to New Zealand, where the Maori people live, and I would pray in tongues and these Maori people would be like, that's amazing. And I'd be like, can you write it down so I can preach it next week, you know? Um, that was a joke. You missed it. Um, but they were like, wow, that's incredible. I'm like, how does that work? You know, I didn't know I was speaking Maori. Incredible. The second thing to notice is that there's a parallel with Jesus here in the way that the Spirit empowers the early church. Okay, when we think about the power of the Spirit, we often and understandably and rightly think about being empowered for signs, miracles and wonders, for gifts, for healing, for all of that stuff. And I'm up for that. I believe in all of that. I think it's wonderful. I think it's one of the ways that God builds the church and extends the kingdom. But there's something more basic and fundamental to what it is to be human that's going on here. Remember last week, Jesus, 
He's led into the desert by the Spirit to face temptation. He's there for 40 days in the wilderness. And then it says that he came back out full of the power of the Spirit. He's empowered. He becomes an empowered human in a particular way. Before his ascension, Jesus says to his followers, wait in the upper room, wait for the promised gift of the Spirit, the one that the Father has promised to send in my place. Why? You've heard me say this before. Because otherwise you'll try and do it in your own strength. Yes? You know, the church without the power of the Spirit, what will they do? They'll build buildings and have committees and church councils and fundraising, thermometers outside and yada, yada, yada. We do all of that stuff, but hopefully second to being people who are empowered by the presence of God. But it's more fundamental than that. Actually, what's going on here is that they were being brought to life in its fullness by the Spirit of God. There are echoes, the things that link us right at this moment back into the Genesis account. The word for breath in Hebrew is the word ruach, which is the same word that's used to describe the Spirit in places. It's the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God, the life of God that's breathed into Adam and he comes alive. It's the same breath that God breathes into the early church at Pentecost and they come alive. Like they're alive, but they come alive. Because suddenly the power of God is in them. They fire up. And so Simon Peter becomes Peter. And he goes out and preaches the first sermon in the early church. And it's incredible. And all his disciple friends are going, oh, I guess Jesus knew what he was up to after all. It's like, oh my goodness. And thousands come to faith. Why? Ruach. And so when we say, guys, make room for the Spirit, open yourself to the Spirit, it's not just so you've got some power in you to have confidence to lay hands on someone and see God work through you, it's so that you can be fully alive. And Paul says, go on being filled, present continuous tense, because we're broken crack pots. God fills us with, with his life, but it leaks out of us. And we f- we're filled with life, but it's from that reserve of life that we give others life, and so it runs out. And you have to come back. I get up every morning at six o'clock, and I go into my study, and I sit in my chair... And for the first 10 minutes, I literally sit there and I go, Lord, fill me with your spirit. I literally ask him, bring me alive today. Because every day is Pentecost, right? Really? That that happened this morning. My my youngest came in. Uh, She was up early and she goes, Daddy, are you doing some Buddhist meditation? (laughs) Because I was like that. I was like obviously learning about that at school or something. I was like, no, no. I'm waiting for the Holy Spirit to bring me to life. That's what happens at Pentecost in a particular way. Notice the difference it made. They went out and they lived it because they're alive in this wonderful way. Okay, you get the point, right? The third thing to notice about Pentecost that's going on here is, again, links back to the Old Testament and this idea of temple. One of the ways that the church is described in the New Testament is as the new temple uh, Ephesians 2 is a good example. There's other versions, uh, other passages that talk about this. But notice uh, verse 21. In him, Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And verse 22. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The church is the new temple for God's presence on earth. 
When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the old temple, remember this was torn from top to bottom. God no longer lived in the temple. To quote Bart Simpson, Jesus has left the building. Okay? So Jesus says, you can tear down this temple. I'll rise it. I'll raise it in three days because he is the temple. He is the place in which uh, God's presence dwells on the earth. And now he says to us, you are my living stones. You're my body. You're the temple, the ecclesia. And remember when the temple that Solomon built in the Old Testament, when they finish it, they dedicate it, they have this massive celebration, this service, and they dedicate the temple. And in that moment where it's dedicated, God's presence fills the Holy of Holies and all the priests are wiped out. It's like Charismatic's favourite Old Testament verse. Well, the same thing happens at Pentecost. The, The new temple is dedicated, if you like. God fills the new Holy of Holies with his presence. The difference is this time it's not a fixed space in a physical building. It's the church, it's the community, it's the ecclesia. And so it spills out gloriously into the world around them. They can't help but preach. They can't help but extend the kingdom. They can't help but invite people in. And daily thousands are added as they taste and see that the Lord is good. Why? Because the new move of God is for everyone. It's for the holy and the unholy. It's for those who come and gather with the church and those who don't. And so again, another theologian, this time a chap called Gregory Beale, We'll look at some of his stuff later in the Yobble journey. He says this, Since Christians are now the body of Jesus Christ, Old Testament prophecies of the temple are fulfilled in the church. Just as Eden was to grow and fill the earth, so the church grows as the beginning fulfillment of the end-time temple in Jesus. We'll look at that next week, but if you go ahead to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, it describes a heaven-earth city temple. The fulfillment of God's creation purposes you and i are the temple and what that means is that wherever you go you carry the presence of god with you it just depends how much of it's in you how how when did you last get filled up by the holy spirit don't you want to be sloshing it out as you go don't you want it just to be oozing out of you because you're saturated so it just spills out of you Or, or, or do you want to just be someone who kind of has a little bit occasionally and you might have to scoop some out to throw at somebody you can always tell a kind of a spirit-soaked Christian. They're just easy to be around. There's a softness. There's a joy. There's a humility. There's a graciousness. Be like that. The third thing then, just continuing with the temple image. Keep going right in your Bibles. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, which um, is a beautiful little bit of scripture uh, we read uh, this description really of the church and, and Peter is writing um, to what he describes at the very opening of his letter as strangers in the world people who are temporarily living on earth but whose home is in heaven in other words you and I our citizenship is in heaven now and he wants us to grasp who we are and what that means for us so notice a few things. As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, so we're like him, 
are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's verse 5. Skip to verse 9. You are a chosen people. God's, sorry, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you are not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Two things to notice. We are like living stones. We're like a holy priesthood. Uh, Owen and I are ordained Anglican priests. Uh, we're kind of a bit funny about that, to be honest, around here. But, um, but in the kingdom of God, we're all priests. Priests are people who stand in the gap between God and, and his people and declare forgiveness, primarily. Uh, and you and I are ordained kingdom of God priests. Uh, a friend of mine who lives around the corner rang me up the other day and said, can I borrow one of your vicar shirts, one of your co- dog collar shirts? He was going to a murder mystery party, and he'd been given the vicar. And uh, he put it on and... Uh, uh, left home and then they had to go and get some petrol uh, so he went into the petrol station and, and then he had to go to the supermarket to get some wine and chocolate and stuff to take to this dinner party and he just said it's amazing how different people are with you when you're wearing a dog collar he's like can I keep it I was like no no you can't um, uh, ironically it was the vicar that murdered the person in this story at the murder mystery party um, anyway But, you know, just as Adam and Eve were the divine image bearers in the Garden of Eden, we now find ourselves the divine image bearers in God's new world. We're the priests who serve in the temple of the new creation, revealing what God's like, declaring the praises of him, offering spiritual sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Paul says in Romans 12, something similar, doesn't he? So here's what I want you to do. This is the message paraphrase. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Give him your life. But live it like Jesus would have lived it. Live it for Jesus. Reveal Jesus through how you walk and talk, how you serve, how you give, how you share. So that in and through you, God's kingdom might spill out into the world around you, that people might see in you something of who God is. Offer your lives as living sacrifices. You're priests. And we're called to minister to the world. The love, grace, truth, and promise of Jesus Christ. Finally, I want us just to quickly revisit the Great Commission. So turn back, Matthew 28. Uh, I want to just suggest that we could see a few new things here. Again, one of those passages we preach about a lot. Uh, here's uh, the, mass- the message paraphrase again. Uh, God authorized and commanded me, says Jesus, to commission you. And then he goes on to describe what that looks like. I want to suggest to you that the Great Commission is actually a restored commission. Adam and Eve... God brings them to life by his ruach and he places them in his temple garden and he says, now here's your job. The commission, co-mission, literally means shared mission. We share in this mission with God, we co-rule. Here's your shared mission, here's your instructions. Extend the garden. Now Jesus stands before his new ecclesia and he says, now here's your commission. Go into all the world and make disciples. Lead people into life. Take people into the story that you've become part of. 
Help them discover what you've discovered. And by how you live, reveal something. And as you go, baptize them. Extend the the ecclesia. Draw people in and uh, extend the kingdom by how you live, serve and work. What an amazing privilege that, that we get to take on what uh, Jesus began. And he says, you go in my name. And then eventually you'll have the spirit. And when that comes, off you go. So in the name of Jesus, with his authority and in the power of the spirit, we go. And we keep going. Until all the world is made new. Until everyone is brought into the family of God. That's the call on the church. We do that principally in two ways. We do it by inviting people in. We've looked at that already. I just want to reiterate that. Do people know the great story of the world? Do your friends, can they tell you a good story about what everything is and what it is to be human? I guarantee you they can't. So are you going to tell the story? Are you going to invite people to discover who they are and whose they are? And we do it by working. Yep. Like by working. You know, when Adam was tasked with work, when Eve was tasked with work in the garden, it was a good thing. It's only post-fall that work has become a hard thing. And in the kingdom of God, work that's done in the right way and the right kind of work is a joy. And it can be the most dumb, meaningful, meaningless job in one sense, but you can come to it with a particular posture and it be wonderful because you get to serve people through it. I've got a friend who, for many, many years, worked in the city of London. He was a high-flying guy and he had a breakdown, basically, and now he's a bus driver. And he's the happiest he's ever been. He's like Mr. Happy Bus Driver. Now, how many happy bus drivers do you know? One, One. <laughs> yeah. There's always someone. Um, is it my friend? Do you know my friend? It's Joe's dad. Okay. But like, you can change someone's day by being a happy bus driver, right? He says, I have more impact in the world now on a bus driver than I ever did as a banker, which is debatable. But, you know, he felt that. Fascinating, isn't it? Here's what Tom Wright says. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbour as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part, he says, of what we may call building for God's kingdom. I love that language. Building for the kingdom. You know, we can't build the kingdom. Only Jesus can do that. But we can build for the kingdom. Like we can make bricks. And God, the master builder, can find a way to enfold them into his masterpiece. So it takes all of us. Each and every one of us is needed. We all share in that commission. We're all tasked. You've all got work to do. You know, how you approach your study, how you care for your student housemates, how you look after great-grandma at Christmas, all of these things, they make a massive difference, brick by brick, person by person, moment by moment. Is the kingdom of God sloshing out of you because you're filled? That's how the kingdom advances. The church loves looking for the next silver bullet, the thing that's going to just bring revival. There isn't one. There isn't one. 
It's ordinary people who come back to the table and say, yeah, again, to being broken open and poured out. Confident that there'll come a day when Jesus will look at our work and say, that's amazing. Look what we built together. Come on in. Between now and then, there's work to do. And it's just messy and hard and frustrating and sometimes boring. Like making coffee every Sunday. Yeah. Putting the chairs away. It's dull. But that's how it happens. And, and have a look around. Like You don't get to choose your colleagues. You know, we do it together, the rough with the smooth, on a good day and a bad day. We, we love one another in covenant commitment. Why? Because Jesus loves me, good day or bad day. How dare I pick the days when I'm going to love you and not? We just choose to extend the grace we freely received into the lives of one another. There's this wonderful verse in the scripture that says, how will people know that you're my disciples? What's the answer? Anyone remember? By the way, you love one another. Like, it doesn't need another website in Flash Ministry. It just needs Christians to really love one another. And then to go in his name confidently, to go in the power of the Spirit confidently, and brick by brick, trust that we're building something for the kingdom that God uses. So one of my favorite writers is a guy called Rick McKinley. He wrote a book 10 years ago now on the kingdom of God called This Beautiful Mess. And he says this, if I can find it. He says... To be human is to live with loose ends, with people in a world of loose ends, feeling you've been made for perfection, but knowing you can't get there on your own, knowing that you've been placed here to bring something beautiful and blessed into the world. You've been placed in the world to bring something beautiful and blessed into it. And the way you do that, is you spend time with a beautiful, blessed one who makes you beautiful and blessed, and then you go and you share it. That's the church. And you invite people in. Bring your friends to church. That's how I started going to church. Someone invited me in. Invite your friends to carol services. If you're not here, find a good one and go to it. Invite people into your home. Invite people into your small groups. Invite people into your life. And then go and do the things that will allow God's kingdom to extend. Work really well. Go into your workplace and think, I'm here on behalf of the kingdom. Let something of your kingdom spill out, God, in the way I handle my colleagues, the way I make that difficult decision. And then together, encourage one another. You can change someone's day by smiling at them at the till, asking them how it's going, what time are they finishing? Has it been a good day, been a bad day? It's not rocket science. It's up to you. It's a way of life. I want to finish with a quote from a a, a German theologian. I just love this. And then we're going to pray. I'll read it. It's quite long, but it's beautiful. He says this. It can only be that God begins in a small way, at one single place in the world. There must be a place, visible, tangible, where the salvation of the world can begin. That is, where the world becomes what it is supposed to be according to God's plan. Beginning at that place, the new thing can spread abroad. But not through persuasion, not through indoctrination, not through violence. Everyone must have the opportunity to come and see. All must have the chance to behold and test this new thing. Then, if they want to, they can allow themselves to be drawn into the history of salvation that God is creating. Only in that way 
can their freedom be preserved? What drives them to the new thing cannot be force, not even moral pressure, but only the fascination of a world that is changed. I want to ask you, are you willing to be that place? Are you willing to ask God to make your life holy ground? A place in which salvation takes root and goes forth. That in and through you, people might discover Jesus. That's what it is to be the church. Should we stand? Um, what I'd love us to do, by way of start, is at this point, is just simply to open our hands. If you're open to God, if you're up for this, just open your hands, maybe close your eyes so you can focus and, and ask the Holy Spirit to breathe life into you. Yes, power, but life. Ruach of God. The same life that was poured into Jesus. The same life that was poured out on the church at Pentecost. God, we want to be truly, gloriously human. And we know we're only human because you give us life. And we only have it because of grace. And I pray you'd fill us again with your spirit. Breathe upon us. And it really is a little bit like filling a bucket, albeit a bucket with holes. It just takes a bit of time because it's a big bucket. So we just wait. Fill us, God. Some of you might sense, feel the presence of God power of God in a particular way it's manifestations physical on the outside some of you won't, that's okay you can trust that when you ask the spirit to fill you, he will it's not until tomorrow morning that we often notice the difference so be filled Paul actually says be filled to the fullness of the measure of God I'm not entirely sure what that means. But I think it means let God decide when the bucket's full. Thank you, God, that you take the Simon Peters and you make us into Peters. That filled with your life, we come alive. In a beautiful, compelling, confident, bold way. So I pray now for joy to be restored. For fresh courage to rise. For possibility and excitement about being caught up in your kingdom to um, sing around our hearts again for even the most boring bits of our week to suddenly now be opportunities 
to reveal something of your goodness. Give us eyes to see the people and the places that you take us into. Show us how to serve. Show us who to invite into the things of your kingdom. Give us confidence to even reveal that we are part of the church. To take the risk of handing someone an invitation saying, would you come at Christmas? There's a light. It shines in the darkness. It's Jesus Christ. And he shines in me. And he's shining through me to you. Come, Holy Spirit. You'll know who those people are. You'd be surprised. Everyone loves a good carol service, so just be bold. But God, we want it to be a way of life. So I want to pray that you'd help us to join the dots. You'd help us to grasp that it's not about going to church. It's going as the church. Give us a greater love for one another. Humble us where we need humbling. Show us where we've been dismissive of the church or not committed enough to playing our part. God, we long to tell stories of how you work through us. So we commit to first letting you work in us. Confident that there'll come a day when you return and we will rise in glory. And you'll say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And so between now and then we say yes. Yes to your life-giving spirit. Yes to covenant community. Yes to royal priesthood. Yes to invitation. Yes to serving. Yes to working. And we thank you that you promised to be with us to the very end of the age. Thank you that when we go, you go with us by your spirit. And so as we go, may we know your blessing. The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.